Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Hey gang, how's it going? Doing good? For those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Nate Burzi, I'm part of the leadership team here. And uh, yeah, I get to preach this morning. A couple big things last night kind of happened in Canadian history. I don't know if any of you have been kind of following labor relations that have been going on with the RCMP. And um, basically, as of last night, just through a couple events happening, we're kind of within hours, maybe days of, uh, of being unionized, which is a really, really good thing. Um, so it, the reason why that's amazing to me is because you get a bunch of type A personalities who are used to being in charge and then get those guys in a room and try to collaboratively come to a mutual decision together. I never thought it would happen, but anyway, it's a good thing. Um, Then again, so last night, um, the Leafs are in the playoffs. Like, what's up with that, right? So, like, just to let you know where, like, my mind, and I'm a Leafs fan. I've been a Leafs fan since I was young enough to be indoctrinated and not know any better. Um, So, like, for me, where my mindset is at right now, like, I'm kind of half expecting Jesus to return, like, today. Like... Because then I would have seen it all, right? Like, so I'm kind of, if you see me kind of looking over my shoulder every now and then, like, that's kind of why. So some crazy things going on. Happy for me, yes, right. Yeah, I can't keep down over there, all right? John 13. John 13. We're going to be in, uh, continuing on in, uh, in the book of John. And we've gotten to a point where, before I read the text, I just want to paint for you a bit of a picture and context of where we're at. And now, currently, the disciples are up in the upper room with Jesus uh, in the city of Jerusalem. I've had a chance to be there personally myself on a bit of a study trip and and, and kind of walk around in the area where they believe that the the upper room was, and it's quite fascinating. But Jesus is um, with his disciples in the upper room, and they're having dinner together, and it's the Last Supper. And some kind of crazy things are going on in, in the midst of that. Um, Jesus has already called out Judas in the sense he's saying, one of you are going to betray me. Right now you have to understand what, a, what, a, what a, just a, an extreme statement that is. You know, you have Jesus' followers who are like family who have been through him, with him through some very difficult times already and, and all of a sudden he's saying, one of you are going to betray me. And they're all kind of sitting there looking at each other like, he's talking about me, he's talking about you, who's he talking about? Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of tension that's there. They've already been fighting over kind of who's the greatest. And, uh, and so there's a lot of tension. Jesus is actually preparing them for what is to come in the next few days. And that's ultimately what Jesus is doing. So they're having, they're breaking bread together. And then Jesus is taking this time with them to discuss with them things that are going to happen. And he's saying, I'm going to leave you. Um, my time on earth here is done. And my ministry, my physical bodily presence of ministry for this period is coming to a close. And I'm going to be gone. And, and where I'm going, uh, you cannot follow. And so you have to understand this in the mind of the disciples. Like, they've started a movement. Like, they're gaining a lot of public attention, right? And it's like the train is going in a direction. And all of a sudden, like, the conductor hops off. It's kind of like, what, what, is, what is happening here, right? So the disciples, there's a lot of tension and questions there. And, uh, and we pick it up in John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, 
Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Peter pipes up and he's saying, Jesus, no matter how bad this thing gets, like where could you possibly be going? Like no matter how bad this gets, no matter what this even means for me, I will follow you. Like I'm your right-hand man. I'm your guy. Like, like I, where you go, I go. And then Jesus turns and says, really, Peter? Do you, do you really believe that? Because in the next 24 hours, you are going to deny, before the sun comes up, you are going to deny me three times. Like as, you know, as a, as a, as a rabbi, as a teacher, saying that to a student, not only, are, not only are you not going to fulfill what I've called you to do, but you're going to go to the exact opposite, completely hang me out to dry, completely deny me. Those are hard, hard words. You see, Peter's mouth wrote a check that ultimately his faith and his heart could not cash. And Jesus called him out on it, called him out on it very, very clearly. And those are hard words. You know, and Peter was the guy, like, we have to understand the character of Peter a little bit. He was the guy, like, if he was the one that was going to go to battle for Jesus, like, if anybody was going to do that, that was Peter. If anyone was going to stand up for Jesus in the face of controversy, that was Peter. If anybody was going to speak out, that was Peter. We see that all throughout the text in his life. And then Jesus calls out the hypocrite in him. Not only are you not going to be loyal, but you're going to deny me. Completely deny me. Now you have to understand something here. Peter understood that Jesus was Lord. Peter understood that very clearly. And Jesus knew he would turn his back walk in the opposite direction, and forget that he ever knew him. We have to put ourselves in, Peter, in Peter's place here for a second, how crushing at the time those words would have been. I remember part of the um, application process to get in the RCMP is that you have to go through a pre-employment polygraph. And polygraph is essentially a lie detector test. And it was one of the most horrific experiences of my life. Because they want to dig up every, all the dirt that you have. Everything, everything that you've done in your life that even could be construed as wrong. They want to know what that is so they don't, aren't hiring any crazy people or people with kind of really bad backgrounds. And so I remember like it was yesterday. I was 19 years old and I'm walking into this room and, and the room is white and there's like no, like nothing on the walls, nothing. And, and this polygraph examiner comes in and he's got like the Ned Flanders, like really thick mustache and like Coke bottle glasses and I'm almost sure this guy didn't have a soul. Like I'm not sure... But I'm almost sure. Like, this guy was really, really mean and intimidating looking. And he sits down, and, uh, you know, we're kind of, like, when I get nervous, I kind of tend to, like, become a little louder and crack, a, you know, a few jokes, which, which is why preaching is actually a really good fit for me. Um, but so, we're, so I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to, like, crack jokes with this guy, and, like, nothing. Like, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just straight face. Like, I would say something, he would just kind of look over. And continue on sitting up this thing. I'm like, oh, like I, this is a horrendous experience. And so he tells me, he's like, uh, so you know you have to be brutally honest, right? And I'm, yeah, that's like why I'm here. No, like you need to be really, really honest. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm like, well, I, I think so. I, I don't know now. Like I, I'm going to tell you everything I know. Like what? You know, so he just had really had me kind of stirring in my words. He said, I'm going to tell you a story of how honest I want you to be. And so he says, okay, so your mom bakes this beautiful chocolate cake. 
It's a, you want to eat that cake. But she tells you and your little sister, you do not eat that cake. That cake is for family or that cake is for guests only. And so sure enough, you walk away from the cake and, and your sister and her friends come over and they just devour the cake. Like they absolutely just devour the cake. And, uh, and you walk by and you're, in, you're amazed that your, your sister would be so disobedient. And, but the cake's there and there's a little crumb left on the plate. And he said to me, you, know, you, you take the crumb and, and you put it in your mouth. Right? Then your mom comes home and she asks you, did you eat the cake? What do you say? And I'm like, well, I kind of ate the cake. You ate the cake. Okay, I ate the cake. I ate the cake. I ate the cake. All right, all right. Right? So this is, I mean, that was the most horrendous. It was almost about four hours of digging everything that bad I've ever done. And I was 19 at the time, so a lot of that stuff was pretty fresh, right? <laughs> so, like, we're going through all of this, and I feel like absolute garbage by the end. Like, I'm walking in, and they're going like that. I blew it. Like, I wouldn't hire me at this point. Like, this is really, really bad, you know? And uh, they didn't think I was that bad because, uh, you know, they, they let me in. But, I mean, man, it was, it was a horrible, 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 horrible experience, right? So I kind of, when I, when I think of this story, I actually put my, I go back there automatically. It was a bit traumatic for me. But I go back there because I think of, like, how Peter would have felt being called out by Jesus face-to-face in a moment where he's zealous and on fire. And, yeah, Jesus, I would do anything for you. And he's like, really? You're going to deny me, Peter. Called out the absolute hypocrite in him in that moment. And so you've got to put yourself in his position and how that would have felt. This would be crushing, crushing to somebody, especially like Peter. And it would also be a really horrible story if it ended there, but we pick it up in, verse, uh, in chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. And just so you know that the way that your Bible is laid out is that you have um, chapters, you know, chapter 13, 14, 15, and then you have numbers. And those weren't in there in the original manuscripts. Those were put there afterwards by man for, to be helpful for us, right? So there's nothing really godly about the chapter divisions in of themselves, and I think actually sometimes they do us a bit of disservice, and, and this is kind of one of the ways that I think they do that, because this is kind of one kind of running story, and we tend to stop at the end of 13 and, and think 14 is something completely different, but it's not. Uh, chapter 14, uh, Jesus says it up, so you think about this. Just called out the hypocrite in Peter. Peter's feeling absolutely just probably horrendous about himself at this moment, and these are the first words that comes out of Jesus' mouth. He doesn't say, Jesus, you're an absolute coward, and you should be ashamed that I'm leaving. It's not what he says. He says this, let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Jesus doesn't say, I'm leaving. He says, actually, I'm coming to get you. I'm going to be with you. You belong with me in my house. So we think about that. I think God's trying to tell us a couple things here. Um, The first thing is that you belong in God's house. You belong in God's house. doesn't matter what part of the world, what age, whatever. We were all created to live with God in his house. It's the way the imagery, the, the scripture is using. Second part is that God's grace follows us to bring us home. He comes and he's the one who gets us. And the third part is that although the, life, uh, although the road of life can be hard, the destination of being home with God makes it worth the journey. Although the destination, uh, although the journey is really hard, 
just the thought of being home with God actually makes it, makes it doable, makes it, makes it worth it. And so the first part I want to go over is you belong in God's house. And I, and I use the word house and the term because it's just the imagery that the Bible paints for us. Jesus is saying, I have rooms, I have a house, I'm coming to get you, you're going to live with me in it. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of Rick Warren in, in some ways. Um, you know, I've read a couple of his books. I don't necessarily agree with uh, everything that he says, but he's bang on on some points. And one of his quotes here I actually really like. He says, um, you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. So regardless of what part of the world you're from, how old you are, what your background, it doesn't matter. Is that you were made by God and you were made with a purpose. You were made for him. Until we can wrap our minds around that in some way, our life will never truly make sense. We will never really be able to connect the dots on anything. Uh, And I think actually Rick Warren ripped off uh, St. Augustine. Uh, He actually said something very similar many, many years before Rick Warren did. And he said, um, and I'm just paraphrasing here, he said, Oh, Lord, uh, we were created by you. Our heart was created by you. And, and, and we are restless. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Genesis 1 tells us something about that. It tells something about our purpose. The reason you exist, the very makeup of your DNA. Everyone here, I'm talking to everybody in the room. The very makeup of your DNA. Inside, there's something in you that longs for that feeling of home. You were created to know God, to live with Him, to work with Him, to enjoy Him. There's something in you that that longs and desires for that. Our home is with Him. You you think about that feeling of coming home sometimes when you've been away for a while, and it's that feeling of, I am where I'm supposed to be. I'm here now. I can rest. I can relax. I'm I'm here. Um, This is what God's talking about. Our home is with him. Um, I think that's the reason why the world dysfunctions so much as it does. The reason why there's so much dysfunction is because you have a bunch of orphans who have run away from home. And when orphans run away from home, I can tell you from firsthand experience being a police officer, bad things happen. Bad things happen. I remember when I was about three or four years old, and... uh, and it was just me and my sister. And my sister, she was one, one and a half at the time. And, and she comes and, and uh, my mom is feeding my sister. So she's sitting down the table feeding my sister. And for me, I, I, I know you probably can't tell by looking at me now, but I was a chubby kid. And I really enjoyed food a lot. And I like to eat probably every five, ten minutes. And my parents almost went broke trying to feed me. But uh, so anyway, I'm this little kid and I come up and, Mom, I'm hungry. I want something to eat. It's been five minutes. Like, I want something to eat. I'm hungry. And my mom's feeding my sister. And she goes, honey, like, not now. Like, not now. I'm I'm busy feeding your sister. I'll I'll get to you in a bit. And so for me, like, at that age, and that's kind of continuing on with my life, like, the words weight and food, like, they don't really go well. Like, they don't mesh well together with me. And so anyway, so I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I got to do something. I'm going to show my mom. And so I decided I'm going to run away from home. That's it. I'm running away from home. And, uh... And so I sneak out the back door, and of like all the places I could have run to, like, where do you think I kind of went? Like, my grandparents live right down the street. Like, we had some friends of ours that were close by. I ran to Mary Brown's chicken. I, I don't know what it was. Like, maybe it was like a mother figure, Mary Brown's, and there was fried chicken. I don't know. Something attractive about that to me. But where we lived, about kind of two streets over, there was a bit of a commercial strip, and there was a Mary Brown's chicken there. And so sure enough, like I managed, I don't know if I followed my nose or just knew the way, I'm not sure instinctively, I don't know. But I like, 
I followed, and I went, and I went to Mary Brown's Chicken. I kind of walk in the door, and these late, like, three-year-old walking in the door going, like, what, where's this kid come from? He's clearly not starving. What's going on here? <laughs> I walk in the door, and I'm, like, like, owning the place, right? Like, I want some chicken. I want someone to feed me. I'm really hungry. And, uh, and I think I might have said something. My mom says uh, she heard one of the ladies say, I think he said, like, he doesn't get fed often. We didn't really believe him, though. So anyway, they're trying to get their, my name out of me and trying to find out, like, where did this kid come from? And, and sure enough, like, they just kind of kept feeding me chicken, right, until I told them my name. And so uh, I got what I wanted, success. There you go, right? Eventually, I, I told them my name, and they actually got a hold of one of my aunts or uncles. And, like, by that point, like, the police were out. Like, all my relatives were out looking for me. And, you know, it was a bit of a funny story. But I think about that you know, where I decided to run away from home, and, and especially now with the point of view that I have, it's like, man, so many bad things could have happened to me. Like, so many bad things could have happened to me. I was out of the house for probably four or five hours, somewhere around there, you know, and I think of that. And, uh, you know, when, when we're orphans, orphans who, you know, essentially we have a home, but we run away from it, um, bad things can happen, and I think that's why the world dysfunctions so much. Because we're meant to enjoy God, to be with God, to live under his house, under his authority. And when we remove ourselves, we dysfunction. And the Bible describes us like orphans as well, um, those who have run away from home. Lamentations, uh, verse 5, or sorry, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Uh, Israel's crying out and they're saying this, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. You see, essentially, people of God ran away from God, ran away from his rule, his house, his reign, and bad things have happened to them, and this is their statement. Look and see our disgrace. And so we think about that. Is that our fate? Is that where things end off? The story just ends with us being orphans in a dysfunctional world where bad things happen? And the answer to that question, obviously, we know is it's not. It's not. God is our Father, and He is the one who comes out, gets us, brings us home. Have you ever had your dad do that when you were out way past your bed, bedtime or out missing curfew or whatever, and like he comes looking for you, and you know like, that's the most terrifying thing in the world? right? God comes out, and He gets us, and He brings us back. You know, my kids always ask me, you know, where's Jesus now? Where's Jesus now? I know, like, you're talking about Jesus, but I don't see him. Where is he now? And, uh, and I always tell them, I go to John 14. I say, like, boys, he's, he's, uh, he's up in heaven right now, and he's preparing a room for you because you're going get to get to go there with him. Really? He's preparing, like, my own room? Like, they share a room, right? Our two oldest boys. And so, like, for them, that's like, I, I got them sold right there, right? But they're like, oh, we get to... Jesus is preparing a room for us? Yeah, buddy, he's preparing a room just for you. Like, is there going to be Lego in it? Yeah, buddy, there's probably going to be Lego in it. It's going to be awesome. Like, is Jesus going to play Lego with me? Yeah, but you've got to clean up. Like, you've got to clean up. That's what's it. Right? Dad, is like Jesus going to yell really angrily at me when he steps on my Lego? No, son, that's just me. That's just me. <laughs> Jesus has more patience than Daddy. <laughs> But my kids get really jacked about this. They're like, yeah, I get my own room in heaven. And, and Jesus is going to come back. Yeah, buddy, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to get you. He's going to bring you to your room. Wow. You know, and, and I don't, like, I can't judge your salvation. I can't do that. 
Um, you are even a poor judge of your own salvation. But every now and then I like to throw it, he checks every now and then, just to say, like, here's some things maybe you should be checking. And it's this, is that if you, like the thought of being with Jesus eternally, the thought of being with him um, for all of eternity in his house, under his rule, under his authority, um, if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't stir up something in you, you might want to check your spiritual pulse a little bit. Because that's the goal. That is the end goal here. With Jesus eternally. For those of us who are authentic believers, we've come to Jesus, we're his followers, we profess faith in him, we've asked him for forgiveness. I'll tell you this, you will never experience joy. You will never experience peace and happiness. You will never experience, you know that just sense and security of restful feeling of being home? You will never experience that like when Jesus comes back and brings you there. Like, you will experience that in ways that you can't even imagine. When Jesus comes back, brings in the new heavens and the new earth, you're made new, no sickness, no trouble, nothing, just him in all his glory, brothers and sisters in Christ, new heavens, new earth. That will be the most glorious day of your entire life. And that's something that we're looking towards. God's grace follows us and brings us home. You know, it's really easy to be, um, to be an armchair quarterback and to look at Peter and to go, Peter, like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. Like, how could you, how could you, like, knowing Jesus, knowing that he's Lord, you followed him, you, like, he was like family to you. And then you're put on the spot and you hang him out to dry? Like, I wouldn't even do that to somebody whom I didn't know very well. Jesus, like, he was, your, he was your Lord. Like, you knew him as Lord. You had a front row seat. And you just completely turned your back on him and gave him up. You know, Peter was supposed to be the strong one, the brave one. How could you do that? I know for me, like, when I say armchair quarterback, I mean, like, you know, you're sitting in your lazy boy, and, like, you kick back, and you're watching the game, and, like, all of a sudden, you become an expert on the sport that you're watching, and you know how to do it better than the sport. I mean, I grew up as a Leafs fan. I spent my whole life yelling at the TV, right? Um, so, I mean, the reality of it is we, it's really easy to judge Peter and throw him under the bus. But if we're honest with ourselves and we understand, we have clarity of our own condition, um, we should be relating to Peter, not judging him. We should be relating to Peter. Peter's mouth and his intent wrote a check that his heart and faith could not cash. And that's you. Peter was an absolute hypocrite in that moment. And this text shines light on us. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. And the reason for that is this, is because we see like, we know what good is. We know what right looks like. We know what righteousness looks like. We're all for it. I mean, we live in a, in a culture of activists. Like, we know when we see what's good and right, we're all for it. And we're very, very quick. Each and every one of us, we're very, very quick when we see something that we believe isn't good and isn't right to call that out. We're very quick on that. 
But the second that good and right becomes a little bit inconvenient for us, the second that good and right doesn't fit well with our intentions and our plans, we will put good and right aside for our purpose. And here's the thing. We will justify every step of that process. Every single one of us in this room is guilty for doing that. We will quickly turn on what is good and right for our purpose. Some of us are so blind to our spiritual condition and just to the condition that we're in, the fact that we're hypocritical, we don't even realize it. Like I'm talking to some of you here and inside you're just like, you're starting to boil a little bit because you don't want to be faced with that truth that, yeah, maybe I'm a hypocrite. Romans 1 to 3, um, chapters 1 to 3 spells it out really clearly. They're saying, no one is good. No, not one. All have fallen short. None live for the glory of God. All of us have fallen short, and it paints us all with that same brush. So again, you go back to think about how Peter felt in that moment. The shame of being called a coward. The shame of being called a failure. Unloyal. A hypocrite. And every single word of it being true. This is you. This is you. But notice this. The first words. Like, so we get into the state of when we come to that realization of, yeah, I'm a hypocrite. Yeah, like there's some ugliness in here. And we think about that. And we think, God, like, you're just going to leave. Like, some of us may not think, like, we know the gospel enough to think that, well, he's not going to totally just ditch me and leave me. But, like, man, God's not going to bless me. God's not going to speak to me now. God's not going to engage in my life. He's not invested in my life anymore now that I've done these things, now that this is who I am. We think that. Jesus' first words out of his mouth are not those words. They're these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. I have a place for you, and I will come and get you. It's not a mistake that that part of Scripture is right after the foretelling of Jesus' denial, or of, of uh, Peter's Jesus, uh, denial of Jesus. That's not an accident that that's there. It's very intentional. It contra- such a contrast it shows that even though Peter did just a shameful, horrible thing, Jesus is still telling him, right after he tells him, hey, Peter, you're a coward. You're going to blow it. But man, I still got room for you in my house. And I will come, and I will get you, and you will be with me forever. This is what he's saying. The first words out of Jesus' mouth. And the reality of it is we deserve, like when I think about God's grace, we deserve to be isolated. We deserve to be separated. We deserve to be abandoned. But God's grace follows us even into the deepest, ugliest parts of your life. And when I mean God's grace, I mean his, his undeserved gift, his undeserved love in our life. So when we give God rebellion, he gives us love and acceptance. When, when we show God just the ugliness of who we are, he shows us his beauty. When we show indifference and just even hatred to God, he shows us his kindness. This is what I mean when I say the grace of God in our lives. 
And it follows us. It follows us. Guys, when you're sitting there and you're surfing porn and you're looking through which video you're going to watch, Jesus isn't saying there, man, now you blew it. I'm gone. He's saying, I love you. And this is ugly and we're going to deal with this. But I'm not leaving. I'm not removing my blessing from your life. I'm not removing my investment in your life. I am not removing my engagement in your life. I am here. And I will bring you home with me. When you're out there and you're just frivolously spending money that you don't have and you're racking up debt and being just a horrible steward with everything that you've been given and you just continually, compoundingly make horrible mistakes in your life, Jesus isn't going, I'm not touching that. That's why you made such a mess of your life. I am not touching that. He doesn't do that. He says, even in the mess that you've made for yourself, I'm not leaving you. I'm not removing my blessing. I'm not going to disengage from your life. I'm here with you, and I will bring you home with me. When you're drunk and you're just spewing obscenities, and gossip and hate and just all kinds of horrible. And I'm talking about the rest of Chilliwack. I'm talking about my brothers and sisters right here in this room. When you're drunk and you're doing those things, Jesus isn't sitting there going, wow, you made a total jerk of yourself and just starts backing away. He doesn't do that. He's saying, I'm with you. I love you and I'm here for you. And this is messy and we're going to deal with that. But I love you and I'm not disengaging from your life. That's what the grace of God looks like. That is what the grace of God looks like. He doesn't leave us. You know, some of us think that, um, you know, maybe just because some of us have grown up in kind of more conservative backgrounds or we just think things that automatically kind of default to this is that when we sin, we just kind of think that God puts up with us. He just kind of tolerates us. You know, but when I'm, when I'm giving or when I'm going on missions trips or when I'm sitting in church and not falling asleep and when I'm doing all these things I know I'm supposed to be doing, well, God really loves me then. And I'm really, you know, he's really going to bless me here. But over here, no, he just kind of tolerates me and just kind of puts up with me. That is not the case. That is not how God views you. That is not how God treats you. Even over here, he loves you and is invested, is not removing his blessing from your life. His love and his engagement, his investment and his blessing in your life is not dependent on your obedience to him. It is not dependent on your obedience to him. And the reality of it is that I know that, <laughs> I know that kids can be very, very hard to deal with. Very, very hard to deal with. Um, my, my middle son, Lawson, he, he walked into, Daniel, or into our bedroom the other day and Danielle's getting ready and we're going out somewhere and he kind of walks in and walks up to Danielle and just whack and like smacks her like right on the butt. Like really, really hard too. Like I heard it from a couple rooms over. And she just turns around like, what are you doing? Like you can't hit me like that. Like what are you, right? And he just kind of looks at her and goes, haters gonna hate. <laughs> turns around and walks out. I, I'm not making this up. I can't make this up. She probably still has the handprint. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was hard. Haters going to hate. Turns out, I'm like, where did he even get that? Like, we don't say that. Where, you know what I mean? Like, I understand that kids can be hard to deal with. 
I know that. But listen to me. A good father, no matter how hard his kids are to deal with, a good father never abandons his kids. A good father never abandons his kids. And guys, I just want to get real practical with you here for a second. Abandonment can look different in different ways. It's not always ditching out the house and you never see him again. Yeah, buddy, no, that's great. That's really good. Abandonment can look different ways. Ignoring your children, not investing in them, can look different. It doesn't just mean you hightail it. You can be present and not present. Got some discipline issues going on up in the children's <laughs> ministry. I don't know, Chris, if you want to go. He may beat them, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to leave them, all right? <laughs> that was perfect timing. If that was going to happen, that was perfect timing. A good dad doesn't, like some of you, and like I know some of you personally, and like you're hard to deal with. You know what I mean? God, not, not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you. Like, I'm super difficult to deal with sometimes. Like, God doesn't abandon his kids. He's a good father, and he does not abandon his kids. He's our security, our strength, our provider, and he doesn't abandon us even when we mess up. The action is all on his part. I will go. I will make a room for you. I will come again, and I will take you to myself. Like, what part did you play in that? Nothing. God is the one. God is the one who grabs us and brings him to himself. Even in, when we're running, we're rebelling. His grace follows us. And although the, life, uh, the, the road of life can be hard, the destination of being home makes, uh, with God makes it worth the journey. Um, when you're a 17-year-old uh, kid, male in particular, you do stupid things to try to prove that you're a man, right? I don't, maybe that was just me. I don't know. But I did stupid things when I was a kid to try, you know, when I was 17, to try to prove to myself that, hey, I'm a man. You know, I'm tough. I can do this, whatever. So when two guys get together and start thinking about that, that that's even compounds the problem. And so me and a buddy of mine, we, we decided, hey, let, let's go winter camping. Like winter camping is like a real manly thing to do. Like we should do that. And that probably would have been okay if it weren't for the fact that we were in Fort McMurray, Alberta during the winter. And for those of you who don't know, like it's like next door to like the North Pole. Like it's geographically, it's bad. And again, probably wouldn't have been horrible if it wasn't minus 40 for the weekend that particular that we went out. But we thought like we're going to be men, we're going to go out and we're going to, you know, we're going we're gonna to go winter camping. And we had our like, canvas tent and like a wood stove and we're like, yeah, we're just going to go out and, you know, rough it. And I, I, like, that was the worst trip I think I've ever had in my entire life. Like, the only thing good about that trip was the feeling of coming home from it. Like, I had, like, my fingertips were frostbitten, my ears were frostbitten, like, my toes, like, everything. Like, it was horrendous. I remember sitting there just, like, rocking, like, just, like, I just, I just want every second of this to be over right now. And, like, I felt similar when I first went camping with young kids in a tent. I felt the same way. <laughs> 
But the only thing good about that trip was the feeling of getting back home after it was done. And for some of you here, like you, that's your life. Like you really have a hard life. Some of the things you wrestle with, some of the things that you've gone through. Like when you sit back and you look at your life, you're like, ah, that's, that's not super pretty. Like it just, and you sit there and you look at the end and you're like, I don't even see this ending anytime soon. Like I know for me personally, for the last, well, almost 10 years now, really struggled with like depression, anxiety, stress, some post-traumatic stuff that I just kind of gathered from the job. And like for me, like there are some points where I've had where I go like, I don't see this getting any better. I don't see this. You know, and for some of you, like dealing with those type of mental illnesses, like it is tough. You are in the depths. You are like, it is a really difficult thing to deal with. There's other things here, like I don't even know half the stuff that's going on in this room. We don't think it can get any better. And you know what? I would love to tell you that in this lifetime, things are going to get better for you. But I can't, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to say that. The reality of it is, your whole life may be that type of journey, that type of trip where the best thing about it is going to be you get to go home at the end of the day. That may be the best part. Like, I don't want to tell you that, you know, and if you just follow God, like, automatically, things are just going to get so much better for your life. Like, I'm not going to say that. What I will tell you is that even in the midst of your darkness, that he's going to be there with you. He's going to be speaking to you. He's going to be invested. He's going to help you through that time, and he's got a purpose in that for you. But I'm not going to tell you it's going to get better. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm not going to say that. You know, in your life, like you may just be kind of crawling at the end of the day, you know, like I remember when I got home from that trip and I remember like I had my stuff with me and I don't even think I put it away. Like I just kind of threw it on the ground and I walked in and like, you know, I'm frostbitten and I'm sore and I haven't slept in two days and I'm sitting there and I remember just getting into the shower and like thawing out and I'm like, oh yeah, this is the best feeling in the world, you know. Um, some of you, like, you may be walking in, like, when your life is done, you may be walking into God's house like that. Like, you may walk in pretty wretched. The mistakes you've made, the things that you've done, the scars that you've developed, things that have been done to you, scenarios in your life that have kind of led you to that point of wretchedness. And you may walk in there, you know, and Jesus is he's going to invite you in. He's got a room for you, and he's going to make you new. All the scars, all of the pain, all of the turmoil won't even be remembered. Your body, all the things that you struggle with, your physical ailments, your mental ailments, everything, wiped away, given a new body. Joy, real joy, true joy, peace, like you've never experienced before. That feeling of just knowing I am exactly where I'm supposed to be in this moment. The feeling of being home. That's what eternity will look like for you. For those of you who've put your trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. That's what that looks like. That feeling of being home. Enjoy beyond compare. Romans 8 um, verse 16 says it like this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen to this part. It's really important. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, today, here, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, with the glory that is to be revealed in you. All of the things that haunt you now, all of the things that are just in you now that you just wish weren't there, all the scenarios in life that just weigh on you and crush you, not even compared, like won't even be a memory, won't even be a memory, like you can't even comprehend that right now, won't even be a memory compared to the glory that you will have with Jesus in his house, in the room that he's built for you. So what I want you leaving here with today is the sense of hope. And I want you armed against lies that are going to come into your life. Because every single time that you're going to go and you're going to do something dumb, what's going to happen is Satan's going to come in and he's going to say, Jesus is withdrawing from you. He's moving out. He's packing his stuff. Just so you know, you keep doing this, he's gone. And what's going to happen is you're going to get into a complete place of despair and go, why am I even trying? Why am I even trying? Jesus is already gone. He's already left the house. What I want you to leave here with Jesus' hope is that, you know what, even though in the midst of those things that you do, he's still there. He is still there. He's a good dad. He doesn't abandon his kids. He's not going to abandon you. Let's pray. If this has kind of struck a bit of a chord with you, if the word of God has kind of stirred something in you, um, we got some volunteers that are kind of situated around that can pray with you. We'd love to do that. Sometimes it helps when the Holy Spirit does something in us and starts kind of stirring up stuff in us. Sometimes it's really helpful just to say, hey, I just need you to pray for me or just to, just to go and have someone to pray with. It's a really good response. Um, so I'm just going to pray and... Um, and then um, Melissa's going to lead us, and, and we'll, we'll close. God, I thank you so much for your love for us. Father, I thank you that, um, God, your grace follows us. God, I thank you that even in the ugliest parts of our life, that you're there, that you don't leave us. God, there's so many times when we just feel you probably should have. But I thank you that you don't. I thank you that you're a good father, and you, you don't abandon us. And God, so we just, we praise you as a result of that. God, our response is that we praise you and we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you that um, this is the worst that ever gets for us. God, that we get to be with you in your house, in paradise, in eternity. And that day is coming soon. And I just thank you for that, God, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope. Father, and I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray that they would not be led astray by the lies of, of, of the evil one. God, I pray that you would arm them against those lies, that when they are in a place of sin and despair, they would not forget your grace. And so, God, I just pray that you would just continue to engage with us and continue to speak with us. God, continue to grow us. Help us develop, develop as a body of believers. God, set the direction before us that you want us to go. God, all for your name's sake, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.